Okay, we are uh, still in Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> we made a gallant stab at it last week and we got the first three verses. <clears throat> so, uh, we are still there. And, uh, <clears throat> and as I said last week, these, particularly these first number of verses, these first six or eight verses in Genesis 6 are just absolutely fraught with difficulty. And uh, so, I think it's important that we take time to get a handle on it. And uh, we're not going to take time today because we have so much more uh, to uh, uh, we have so much more to uh, wrestle with today. We're not going to. I'm not going to take time to to uh, too much in depth explain why we reached or why at least I reached the conclusions that I reached. Uh, last week, I don't know if you reached them or not, but at least I reached them. Uh, so, but we will cover some of that in our review here in just a minute, uh, and and then we'll go on picking up in verse four and and moving down through the next several verses as far as we get. I would like certainly to try to get at least through verse six today. Uh, the passage is extremely difficult, and it's a passage because it's so difficult. A lot of times we run away from it. But it is, I, I think, it's a. I've spent, you know, a, a number, of, quite a bit of time in this passage over the last few weeks because the Lord gave us time through our schedule here for me to be able to focus a little bit more on on these verses, and and I have grown to love these verses, and to love what is, to many people, one of the most difficult verses in Scripture, which is verse six. Uh, Come on in, Christina. Find a place. <laughs> so, uh, more more family and friends coming in here. More wedding leftovers here. <laughs> so, any rate, um, so hopefully you'll you'll grow to appreciate those things too if you haven't so far. But um, let's begin reading in in chapter six, verse one, and we'll read down through the ver- the first eight verses which as we said last week is the transition. He's transitioning out of the, the second Taladot of Genesis and he's transitioning into the third Taladot. The first Taladot or the first account of generations was the account of the generations of Adam uh, beginning in chapter 2 verse 4 and the second Taladot uh, was the uh, account of the generations of Seth beginning in chapter 5 verse 1. Uh, and uh, and that Taladot ends at verse 8 of chapter 6 and he begins the, the third Taladot of Genesis or the third account in verse uh, 9. You know, it might help if I got to Genesis instead of Exodus here. Uh, but at any rate, uh, it begins in verse 9 of chapter 6 where he begins the Taladot or the account of the... Uh, excuse me? Can I make an announcement? Uh, yes, sir. Go ahead. That's all right. Yes, sir. You have five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> For all the guys, uh, we have a men's retreat next weekend, actually Friday and Saturday at Romano's. Last day to sign up is today. So just reminding all the guys. So. Roman Nose is where my wife and I spent our honeymoon. Well, yeah. Back, Watch for the bugs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, brother. <clears throat> 
Uh, so at any rate, he is transitioning. So, of course, the third Taladot is the Taladot of the account of the generations of Noah. So we're getting into the story of the flood. So verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6, as we're transitioning out of the second Taladot into the third Taladot, he's really kind of setting up the story of the flood. Okay, And so that's what we're doing. So we'll begin in verse 1, we'll read through verse 8, we'll review uh, a little bit of what we talked about last week, and then we'll go on. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also his flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years." The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry or the Lord repented that he had made men on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created on the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Then, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. Well, last week we wrestled with those first three verses. What do you remember we talked about last week? Okay, okay. Uh, that the issue here is that the sons of God were, were uh, just picking basically all the hot chicks. <laughs> that's, based, that's the vernacular, okay? They were looking at women and, and, and picking women based on their external beauty and they were, not, they were not allowing God to bring to them their wives as He had done with, with uh, Adam in chapter 2. And... Uh, and so in their indiscriminate love of external beauty uh, that many of them obviously were marrying outside of the faith, so to speak. They, it, was, it was a situation of mixed marriages. What else? Okay. And I was going to say, what did we conclude? But maybe I should say, what did I conclude? That's <laughs> <laughs> They weren't angels, okay? They weren't fallen angels, okay? Okay, they are the descendants of Seth, okay? And we gave, I gave you like ten reasons why I believe that it was that that the sons of God is a reference to the descendants of Seth and not a reference to fallen angels or a reference to royal princes, okay? Which are the other two historic uh, interpretations of the verse, okay? And I gave you about ten reasons for that, and we won't go back into those. So, uh, if you if you'd like to talk about that later, or something, ask me about it. Uh, what our reasons for that are, are but uh, but I think it's fairly clear in the context, considering the context of the passage and the purpose of Genesis and to whom it was written and when it was written and what God was trying to do, uh, and uh, within the context of the passage, the whole discussion of the righteous seed versus the unrighteous seed, that what he's what he's talking about here, and when he's talking about the sons of God, is he's talking about the descendants of Seth or the so-called righteous line or righteous seed. Okay. And so, with those two points that have been brought up so far that we talked about last week, 
the issue, the, the real issue, and remember he's setting up the stage for why the flood was necessary, why God's judgment was necessary. And the real, so the real issue that's at stake here is that the, the so-called righteous line, the descendants of Seth, had failed to live the way God wanted them to live. They had compromised and they had begun marrying outside of the faith. They were participating in mixed marriages. Okay, And this, of course, as we said last week, becomes a major theme all the way through Scripture. The importance of believers marrying believers. Have we got a couple more chairs? we got a couple up here. Uh, it's two back here. Okay, great. Come on in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we made my relatives all sit in the front. <laughs> so, so at any rate, um, <clears throat> where was I? What were we talking about? Oh yeah. So yeah, and the, the theme. So the theme of uh, that that develops here be, actually begins uh, right here and is carried all the way through Scripture is this absolute crucial principle that if the, if the righteous people are going to continue to impact the culture and the society for righteousness and people are going to come to Christ and we're going to avert the judgment of God, the th- one of the things that is crucial is that righteous people marry righteous people. And that's the point that begins to develop here. Later in Deuteronomy, he warns them, when you get into Canaan, don't marry the unbelievers. Uh, when Abraham uh, uh, sends his servant to find a wife for his sons, he says, son, he says, don't get him a wife from Canaan here. You go back to my people and you get a wife from my people. That's the issue that's beginning to be developed here in this idea of the sons of God. Okay? What else did we talk about? Yes, yeah, Solomon's a classic example of marrying pagan women and all that degeneration that occurs in the life of Solomon is a classic example of what happens when believers marry unbelievers. Yeah. Anything else that jumps out at you? Okay, and what did I suggest was the Okay. Okay, yes. That there are two possible interpretations of that. One possible interpretation is that, is that God is, uh, after that, long, that chapter 5 where we have all these guys that live for 800 and 900 years, that what God is doing is He's limiting the lifespan, lifespan of men to 120 years. And I gave you several reasons why I did not think that that's the proper interpretation. But rather that the idea there is that God is saying, you got 120 years, folks. You better repent. <laughs> Uh, and judgment is going to come. Okay, so those are the things we talked about last week, and we won't go over and rehash them in any more detail than this. But we, but the point is, of course, that what what Moses is trying to recount for the children of Israel out in the wilderness as they're coming out of Egypt and getting ready to go into the wilderness, uh, go into Canaan. The thing he's trying to do to them is he's trying to reorder their worldview. They've come out of 400 years of of, of living in captivity in Egypt. And they've been polluted uh, by the idolatry and the paganness of, of Egypt. And, and uh, God is wanting to purify them to be a people for his own possession, as he said in Exodus. And uh, so he's wanting to purify them and then prepare them for their interest in to, to Canaan. So he wants them to understand what are the things that led to God's judgment on man. And one of the things that led to God's judgment on man that led to this excessive wickedness for, that God finally had to eradicate, one of the things was the failure of the righteous line 
to raise up a righteous generation. That was the first. The second thing is this thing that we run into in verse 4, which is the Nephilim. Okay? And he says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Okay? It's a difficult passage again as all these verses are difficult. And it's particularly made a little more difficult by the fact that this idea of the Nephilim comes up again later in Scripture. Do you remember where? Pardon? Uh, in the... Uh, no, I don't think so. Pardon? Okay, what, what's, what's the deal there? Do you remember? They were mighty men, men of renown. Okay, and where were they? Where were those Nephilim? It talks about in Numbers. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. They were in Canaan. They were in, the, they were in the land of promise. It's the reason the children of Israel turned their backs at Kadesh Barnea from the promise of God was the fear of the Nephilim. Okay? The spies that came back said, oh, there are Nephilim in the land. Whoa, it's us. You know, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Well, it's a very difficult word to translate. You'll notice it's capitalized in your Bible, and that's because basically we believe, we understand that it's a, that it's a, it's a title, it's a, refer, it's a name given to a class of people. Okay. And, and this class of people were people who lived a long time ago. Okay. And they were famous. They were powerful, majestic, mighty but also wicked and tyrannical and violent men. Okay? And they lived long ago. And, and we, didn't even, we haven't discussed this because we haven't gotten to the story of the flood yet, but, but many of you are familiar with the fact that the flood tradition, we have, of course, the story of the flood in Genesis, but there's a flood tradition in almost every culture around the world. There's this concept or this idea that there was some kind of a great or worldwide flood. Okay? When I first moved to Colorado Springs and I was studying the Ute Indians in Colorado Springs, the Ute Indians have a flood story. And Pikes Peak plays into their flood legend that they have. Well, the reason that all these cultures have a flood legend is because there really was a flood. Now, their particular version of the legend may not be accurate, but... but People all over the world have this memory of something in ancient history that involved this great worldwide flood. Okay. Well, you have the same phenomena uh, with the Nephilim. Is that there was, at the time that Moses is recording this as he's in the wilderness and as they're preparing to go into Canaan, there was in the minds of, of people all over the world this recollection of these great, powerful, violent people who ruled and, and, and had dominion and control over the world at that time. Okay. The problem was, as I said, uh, as we talked about last week too, when, when God is bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, He's trying to reorder their worldview because their whole worldview has been corrupted by the paganism of Egypt. So as they come out, they've still got their a little bit. They've got their belief in Yahweh and their belief in God, but it's all polluted and corrupted with these other gods that they bring out with them and these pagan ideas. And one of the things that was common among the pagans 
when they thought about the Nephilim, these great powerful tyrants of old, was that they thought that these guys were the byproduct or the descendants of the gods coming down to earth and mating with humans. Okay? So, so in many pagan religions, if you read Greek mythology or Roman mythology, you get this idea of, of the gods having sexual relations with man. Okay? And so this is a very common concept. Now, what Moses wants the children, to, children of Israel to understand is that these great evil tyrants, these, these men of great power and some of them even apparently of great size who dominated the world and led the world into its great spiral into violence, that these people really did exist. But you'll notice in verse 4, what does he call them twice? Yeah. Men. Yeah, he calls them men. Moses is trying to say to the children of Israel, you guys have got this idea of these great men of old, these majestic so-called heroes or mighty men or men of renown of old. You've got this idea and some of you are thinking that these are these, are these semi-gods. And that, you know, it's kind of, that's the idea that they were kind of half God, half men. And Moses wants them to know they weren't half God, half men. They were just men. Now, why would that be important for Moses to tell the children of Israel while they're wandering around in the wilderness that those Nephilim of old were not what you've been told by the pagans they were, that they were these half God, half men, but that they are really just men? Why would that be important for them to know that? They're going to encounter some more just like that. When they get to Canaan, they're going to encounter some more just like that. And what Moses is trying to say here, in addition to helping them to understand why the flood came and why the judgment of God came, how the world degenerated into the wickedness that necessitated the flood, one of the things that God wants the children of Israel to know is that wicked men, great men, powerful wicked men are still just men. And he wants to reorder their worldview. He wants them to understand that man is man and God is God. And as long as you're on God's side, as long as you're walking by faith, we don't need to fear men no matter how powerful they are or how great they are. So that's one of the things that's coming out here in this passage. But so now we understand that there are two primary forces that... There may have been more, but there are two that God points out to us in this passage which led to the wickedness that necessitated the flood. And one of those things was the failure of the righteous seed, the righteous line to raise up a righteous generation. And the second thing is the existence on the earth of these great, powerful, wicked men who led the world into this, into this spiral of violence and depravity that we, next, that we encounter in the next verse. Okay? So that's the setup. Uh, you may still have questions about that verse. Uh, but we want to keep moving because as I said, I'd like to get to verse 6 today. So, in verse 5 then it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God looks on the earth and He looks at man and He sees us for what we are. <clears throat> he sees that every intent of the thoughts of our heart 
or only evil and And one of the things that fascinates me about that is how deep that verse goes. Every intent of the thoughts of the heart. You know, it wasn't just <clears throat> excuse me, it wasn't just their outward conduct, their outward behavior, <clears throat> but that the wickedness of man goes all the way down to the very deepest core of his being. And it is only evil continually. It reminds me of what Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17 when he says, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and who can know it? Now you notice, I don't know if you noticed, but as I've been talking about this verse here just now, I've been saying the wickedness of man is. I haven't been saying the wickedness of man was. You notice that? I'm talking in the present tense. And, and the reason I'm doing that is because the flood didn't change the heart of man. Okay. The flood did not change the heart. And in fact, we get into chapter 8 immediately after the flood. And there's that scene in chapter 8 that we'll get to eventually where Moses is, or Noah is offering up the, the, the sacrifice to God and there's that covenant. God makes His covenant with Noah. Uh, the uh, the second of the great covenants of Scripture, the first one being the Adamic covenant and the second one being is the covenant of Noah. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. <clears throat> but he makes the point, God makes the point in that verse. He starts, he starts using again these, I, I, these identical terms that he uses here in chapter 6 about the heart of man. And this is after the flood when the only person on the face of the earth at that point is Noah and his wife and his, and his kids and, and, and in-laws. And so the point, the point is, is, that, is that that description of the heart of man that we see in that verse is not unique to the period before the flood, but is the condition of the heart of man always. Now you may say to me, so why the flood? <laughs> why not the flood now? Well, there are some reasons. We may or may not get to those today. We'll, we'll hint at them. We'll get at them in depth as we go on, particularly after we get to the end of the flood and we get to that covenant with Noah where he says, I will not flood the earth again. Uh, we'll talk more in depth about if the heart of man is as wicked now as it was before the flood, then why did he, why did he give the flood in the first place? And the second place is, the second question is, why doesn't he send another flood? Okay. And we'll, we'll deal with those questions uh, down the road as we get to them. But... <clears throat> But the thing we have to understand is that, is that as God looked on the human race at this point, He just saw that there was nothing good there. This is this, is this whole issue of total depravity. Okay, now, I use that term advisedly because it means different things to different people. And those of you who are in my class, you know I'm not very Calvinistic, so I don't use the term the way... Cal I don't define the term exactly the way most Calvinists define the term. But, but clearly the Scriptures teach us that uh, teach us this concept of the depravity of man and it becomes clear in this passage. So this is what God sees. And it stands in such stark contrast to what God saw just four chapters earlier or five chapters. We're in chapter 1 and we're going through chapter 1 and as God's creating the earth, what does it say over and over again? It was good. It was good. It was good. He made this and He looked and He saw and it was good and He looked and He saw and it was good and He looked and He saw and it was good. 
And then he creates man. And what does it say? He looked and he saw and it was what? Very good. It was very good. Okay. So, this idea now that God looks again and sees sets this stark contrast between this delight and this pleasure that God had on the days of creation as He created the earth and He brought it into existence and He created man and he brought the, and then He created the woman and He brought her to man. And it was also spectacular and it was also wonderful and it was also good and it was also pleasing to Him. And then Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit. And as we talked about when we were talking about that passage, from the, from the foot of that tree, a ripple of destruction went out from the foot of that tree all the way to the furthest extent of the universe. And all of the creation, Romans tells us, because of that act, was subjected to futility on that day. And so there's this devastating effect that the sin of Adam and Eve has on all of creation. Why? Because they are the head of creation. All of creation is under their dominion. And so when they sin, it has an impact, a destructive impact on everything that's under their dominion. That's a principle that goes all the way through Scripture. You see it with the kings of Israel. You see it with the leaders of the families in Scripture. When they sin, when the, when the father sins, it has a devastating effect on everything that's under his dominion. It has a devastating effect on his family. And, and so, so now we see that God now in chapter 6 looks out at this thing that at one point He saw was so beautiful. And now it's absolutely, totally corrupted. So we come then to verse 6 and it says, God was sorry that He made man on the earth. Now, if you have a King James translation, you'll probably notice it says, repented. Or it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth. And... Uh, so obviously this is a verse that just, you know, just gives us the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> and the reason it gives us the heebie-jeebies is because it appears to conflict with everything we thought we knew about God. Right? This verse really touches on on several things about the very essence of God. And and so if we don't understand it properly, our concept of God gets all disoriented. <laughs> and that's why once we kind of think we've got God figured out, we come back and we read Genesis chapter 6 and we, and we get to verse 6 and we go, this verse does not compute. Well, I would suggest to you that this verse actually deals with one of the great realities of the essence of God. God's nature. And it also deals with one of the essential, foundational realities of the message we preach. The Gospel of Christ. Now, the first thing is, what does the word mean? Well, it's a very difficult word to translate and that's because it is used in a number of places. The Hebrew word there is used in a number of places in Scripture. And... And it really has 
several different nuances or ideas or thoughts uh, meaning to it. Okay. So it can, in, in some places, does carry the clear idea or meaning of repentance. In, in other places, it carries the idea or the thought of just great pain or great grief. Okay. And so the only way we can really understand the word and the meaning of the word, since it has a variety of uses, is we have to understand from the context. That's one of the clear ways we figure out what does a word mean in Scripture if it, if it has various meanings uh, or various nuances to it. But as I was describing the meaning of the word to you, the great pain or grief uh, or anguish or repentance, really those words are all pretty closely connected, aren't they, in their sense? That's, you know, when we talk about repentance, we're talking about somebody who's who's really pained or grieved about what they have done, okay? So that so while in one sense the word has kind of a variety of nuances or meanings, in, in one sense in another sense they're all pretty closely linked together. Okay? And that's why translators translate it in a variety of ways. Okay? And I would suggest to you that even though I prefer the New American translation here, which says he's sorry, I think the translation that he repented is a very good translation and carries a great deal of the sense of the passage. So the question is, does God repent? And I would suggest to you the answer is yes. Okay. Now the question is, what does that mean? Okay. Well, we have to think a little bit about this, about the essence of God here. Okay. So we're going to get in here in the next few minutes. We're going to talk a little bit about theology. We've talked about some of this stuff before. And particularly, there's a couple aspects of the nature of God that we need to address here. And one is his immutability, that is, that God does not change. Okay? And the second is his eternality, which is closely linked to his immutability. Okay? Those two things, you, you can't really separate those two things. Okay? And you remember uh, back a number of months ago when we were studying Second Peter, we got talking about this idea of the eternality of God. And, and, I, and I express the eternality. When I'm talking about the eternality of God, I use... I express it in a way, and I don't, I don't know if it's as precise as it could be, but it's a way that helps me understand this whole idea of the eternality of God. We, we, we have to understand that time is a created object. You remember that. Time, time, like space, is created. You know, when scientists talk about the Big Bang, whether or not there was a Big Bang or not, we won't go into that right now, but when scientists talk about the Big Bang, they talk about the beginning of space and time. Time is a creation. And if time is a creation, it is under and less than and apart from the Creator as we understand Scripture. Okay? And so... When we talk about God being eternal, we don't really mean that He's lived a really long time and didn't have a beginning. That's not what we mean. What we mean is, and I put it this way, and, I, and I'm sure theologically and technically it's not exactly precise, but the way I like to put it is God is outside of time. Now, we don't, that, you know, at that point, our brain shut down, right? Because, because, because we are such slaves to time because God created us as finite beings and one of the aspects of our finiteness is we are within time and we cannot function or think outside of time. But God is outside of time and He must be outside of time because time is a created object. 
And if He is truly the, the God that Scriptures represent Him to be, He must be distinct and apart from His creation. Now, that does not mean that He can't enter time, just as He can enter space, and just as He can enter you. Okay, So He can enter time, but He is independent of time. Okay. Now, the problem is, when we start talking about God changing, we start wrestling with this higher theology stuff about the eternality of God, right? Because change is a factor of what? Time. time. Change is all... Anytime we talk about change, it has something to do, it relates somehow to time. But God is outside of time. So He does not change. And so He says in Malachi, He says, I am the Lord. I do not change. And so we get the idea of the immutability of God. God does not change. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I what? Am. And we talked about this when we were in Peter and I'll tickle your minds with it again. Now, I think there's some sense in which Jesus... Of course, the issue he's dealing with there, of course, is who is his identity. But there is some sense in which I think what Jesus is saying to us there about God is that God does not experience things in the sequential way that we do, but that he always experiences everything simultaneously because he... And the term simultaneously is obviously a time term, so forgive me for using it. But, but he experiences everything at once. Because he is eternal. He just exists. He doesn't exist then and now and tomorrow. He does in our perspective. But he's eternal. He's outside of time. So he does not change. And so over and over and over in Scripture, we encounter these ideas of God does not change. But when it comes to the question of the immutability of God, we have to understand that immutability, excuse me, I'm going to start tripping over my words here, that immutability is not immobility. And Scripture, while it does teach us the immutability of God, clearly tells us that God is not immobile. And by that I mean, if we get anything from the Bible, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we get the idea that God acts. He does stuff. He's not just a force up there. But He's an active God. So in Genesis, He's creating. And later in Genesis, He's coming down and walking with Abraham and talking with Abraham. Eventually, He's entering, he's entering the human race in the Incarnation. Ultimately, eventually, as we've been learning in the worship service, he's going to judge all this stuff. And he's going to, you know, and he's. He, so God is a God of act. He's not an immobile God. Now, I know at this point your brains are probably shutting down because mine is. Okay? So, how do we understand that God is immutable, but he acts? He does things. And he, and he actually changes the way he does things. Have you noticed that? We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And God changes the way He deals with the people of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But at the end of the Old Testament, He says, I am the Lord, I change not. What does He mean? 
Well, the immutability of God does not say that God is immobile, that He doesn't act. But it says that God does not change in His person, in His essence, in His character, and in His purposes. So Hebrews in, chapter, in Hebrews in chapter 6, he talks about his unchangeable purpose. Okay. But it is clear, and this is an exciting, this is where it gets exciting to me, it is clear that God does change. How does he change? Well, uh, a couple examples. Go over to the book of Jeremiah. Let me get the exact reference here. I forget the chapter. Uh, I think it's Jeremiah 18. Um, no, that's not it. Let me find the reference. Um, uh, see, now, now, I'm not like Dave yesterday. I did actually cut and paste this stuff and it actually did come down. But I just... But I just don't know where I put it in my outline. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I, I don't see where I got it in my outline here. You know, this is what happens when you never refer to your outline when you teach, then you get lost. Okay. Any rate, it's in Jeremiah. And the Lord is talking to the children of Israel, and He says, Now, if a nation obeys me and follows me, and all such, He says, then, then I'm going to do good for them. I remember the verses. They're verses five to ten. So you just go every chapter in Jeremiah, and it'll be verses five to ten. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, is it eighteen? So. Did, did, I, did I did I miss it there? Uh, uh, I thought it was Jeremiah eighteen. Oh, okay. I'm looking in the wrong verses. That's my problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. It's Jeremiah eighteen. I'm sorry. Okay. Let's read the verses. I'm sorry. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, "Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you?" As this potter does, remember the story of the potter. Okay, he said, "No, I can do. I can deal with you as a potter does." Declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent. It's the very same word we have in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, where he says, I am sorry. I will relent. Uh, what verse am I in? Um, eight, yeah. Uh, I, will, I will relent concerning the calamity I have planned to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight, by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. And so we discover something about how God changes. And we have a classic example of this in the story of Jonah and Nineveh, right? Okay? God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And what does he tell him to tell him? He's telling him I'm going to judge him. He doesn't tell him to repent. He doesn't tell Jonah to tell Nineveh to repent. He tells him to tell him, I'm going to judge him. God is going to judge Nineveh. Now, I don't know if you ever wrestled with this when you studied the book of Jonah, but I have. God says, I'm going to judge Nineveh. And I want you to go tell him, I'm going to judge him. So Jonah reluctantly goes to Nineveh and he tells him, I'm going to judge him. Now, why was Jonah reluctant to go to Nineveh? 
because he knew God was merciful and he suspected that if he told the people of Nineveh they were going to be judged, that they would go to God and they would repent and God would change his mind. Jonah knew something about God that is revealed to us in Genesis chapter 6. That though God in his essence never changes, in his purposes, in his promises, in his character, he never changes. One of the things, as one commentator puts it, that God in his immutability always changes conditioned on our response to him. Wow. That's awesome. In other words, because God never changes, I can have absolute confidence that He'll respond to me. And we begin to discover here, actually we've already been discovering it, but we begin to discover here something else about the essence of God. The personhood of God. We talk a lot about the personhood of God. Do you have any idea what it means? We say, we talk about the Trinity, we say, God is, is uh, three in one, what? Three what in one? Three persons in one. We talk about the personhood of God. Well, that's not just some term we just throw, that theologians just throw around because they don't know what else to say. Well, it may be because they don't know what else to say. But personhood has some implications. And what are some of the characteristics of your personhood? Well, one of the characteristics of your personhood you feel things. Within the last 24 hours, I have felt great joy. And I've also felt great sadness. Now, because I'm not God and I'm not Infinite, I experience those things sequentially. But I experience them because I'm a person. That's part of my personhood. Now, if you believe God is a person, which I hope you do, then you must believe that God feels things. And that's what we discover as we read the Bible, isn't it? That God has all kinds of emotions. It's kind of, you know, when we think emotion, the first word that comes to my mind is change. <laughs> okay? Because my emotions are always changing, so are yours. But when my emotions change, my essence doesn't change. Uh, not normally. <laughs> but when God's emotions change, He never changes. And so what we discover about God here, and this is just such an incomprehensible truth, is that God created the world and He was filled with such pleasure, such exquisite joy He felt as He looked at this beautiful thing that He had created. And then the serpent comes in and entices the woman and she... Uh, she uh, entices her husband and he, and he falls and they sin and they bring the sin in and he instantly the entire creation is destroyed, is subjected to futility. And God's joy 
turns to sorrow. Well, I say it turns to sorrow, but remember God's eternal. And he experiences all things, if I can use the term and the concept, simultaneously. And to illustrate this, let me just suggest to you that yesterday here in this church, we were having a wedding and a lot of you were here and we were feeling a lot of joy. And I think, you know, God was doing this thing and I think God was pleased with what was happening. And I think God was really having a lot of joy about that. While we were doing this, somebody somewhere in the world was sharing the gospel with somebody and they were coming to Christ. And God was experiencing incredible joy. But while that was happening, some brutal man was raping a little girl. And God was grieved. At the very same moment that he was experiencing and sharing in our joy, he was sharing in that terrible grief. That's what the eternality and the immutability and the personhood of God is all about. Right? And we have to believe that if we believe what the Bible teaches us about God. And so I come to understand that this verse really means what it says. That when God thought about the creation of the world, He was filled with grief. Now, some commentators, they kind of sidestep this issue. And they say, well, what God was really sorry about here was the wickedness of man. And He was sorry about the wickedness of man, but that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse says explicitly that the thought of the creation brought sorrow to His heart. And it was a change. It was a change from the joy that He felt in the creation earlier. Now, I'm talking in terms of time again, right? Okay. So, I'm speaking anthropomorphically, right? Okay. We have to understand, anytime we talk about God, we have to start talking anthropomorphically because we can't understand Him. So, we have to talk in human terms. Okay. So, I say that God changed. That at one moment, He felt this exquisite joy and another moment, speaking in human terms, he felt this terrible pain as he looked on the wickedness of the world. And he grieved as he thought about the fact that he had created man. And it was such a great grief and he saw the condition was irredeemable. By that I mean, I believe, as I understand Scripture, that there was no hope of repentance left for any. There was no way to turn it around. And so the time for judgment had come. Noah was the only one who was righteous. I believe that and based in part on what Peter says about God is not slow about His promises, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And the question is, why does God forestall judgment? He forestalls judgment so that people would repent. And as... For those of you who were in my class back several years ago when we were teaching Revelation and we got to the end, what was the point I made? The point I made was the judgment of God will come when the last sinner has repented. 
when God knows there will be no more to repent, then the judgment of God will fall. And I think that's one reason why the flood came at this point. There was no repentance left. It was an irredeemable situation. And it created in God this great grief. <clears throat> so let's don't, let's don't sidestep this verse. Let's don't run from this verse. Let's let this verse remind us that God, in His immutability, in His unchanging nature, always responds to people and how they respond to Him. That's the nature of personhood. That's the nature of relationship. And that goes to the heart of the Gospel we preach, isn't it? Why do we preach the Gospel? We preach the Gospel because we believe that if people do not turn to Christ in faith, they will perish. And we believe that if they do turn to God by faith in Christ, they will be saved. That God will change His intention to destroy them and will save them. Now, I'm sorry if you're a hyper-Calvinist here. This may be a little uncomfortable for you, but I think that's the clear teaching of the Scripture. Now, just in the last few minutes we have, comes another just absolutely wonderful concept. And we won't be able to explore this uh, verse 8 totally in detail until next week when we get more into the story of Noah. But we discover that Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what's interesting about that is this description of Noah comes at the end of the second Taladot and not at the beginning of the third Taladot. The third Taladot is the account of the generations of Noah. And he actually gets into talking all in the next few verses about Noah's righteousness and you know his relationship with God, he walked with God, and all this sort of stuff. He's talk, he talks about all that. But at the end of this account, he throws in this comment about Noah. And the question is, why? Why doesn't he just wait a verse? Until this Taladot closes and we begin the next Taladot. Why does he put it in here? Well, there's something there that us English readers will never see. This is in the Hebrew. And since I'm not a Hebrew scholar, in fact, I'm not a Hebrew anything, I have to trust the scholars on this, okay? But there's something going on here that we can't see, and it's, and it's a wordplay that's going on. There's a Hebrew wordplay here. Now, remember when we were at the end of chapter 5. Uh, they're about verse 29 or whatever. Lamech becomes the father of whom? Noah. And he calls him Noah. Why? Hmm? Yeah, because he's going to bring comfort. He's going to bring rest. And Lamech is thinking about how mankind needs this rest. They need this comfort from the curse. And so he names his son, by faith, he names his son Noah. But we get down now into chapter 6, and God uses this Hebrew word that we translate repent or sorry or whatever, however you translate it. And what's interesting is, there's a striking similarity between the Hebrew word sorry and the name of Noah. And commentators point out that that's a Hebrew wordplay. In other words, that the writer of he, the writer of Hebrews, the writer of Genesis here, either the first narrator of this account or Noah, as he records it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit somewhere out there in the desert, 
not Noah, Moses. Did I say Noah? I meant Moses. As he's recording it. Okay. Is using a word play between the word sorry and the name Noah to associate the two together. And we discover that what he's trying to tell us is when we are grieved, we want what? Comfort. Who is grieved in this passage? God. Who brings him comfort? Noah brings him comfort. And we read this, we'll get into the next, chat, next verses in the next week and we'll get into the whole thing about Noah walking. We talk all about Noah walking with God, he believed God, and we'll talk about Hebrews where he believed God and all that sort of And we talk so much about the dynamic of the relationship from Noah's side, but, but what this verse is trying to point out to us is the dynamic of the relationship from God's side. And you go, well, I, don't, I don't know, is that theologically correct to talk about man comforting God? I, you know, that makes me squirm a little bit. Well, does it make you squirm when we talk about man grieving God? When Paul says to us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit? If we can grieve God, if we can bring to Him that emotion, can we not too bring to Him the emotion of comfort and rest? That's awesome. That is awesome. And Noah, by the fact that he believed God and he walked with God and he loved God, and in spite of all, everybody else around him was wicked and violent, and he just kept clinging to that promise that there was going to be a seed that would crush the head of the serpent. That's all he had. He just had that. And he just kept believing that and believing that and believing that and saying, if that's true, then I'm going to live the way God wants me to live because He's going to send a seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And I'm going to believe that. And as he believed it, as God was experiencing all this other grief, when he looked at Noah, his grief was assuaged. And he felt comfort. And the other night, as I was thinking about this verse, and I was lying on my bed at night, and I just said, God, could I just be a guy that would just bring you comfort? I don't want to be a guy that brings God grief. I want to be a guy that brings God comfort. That's a glorious possibility that we have. When we get into the verses next week, we'll see it starts by faith and we'll talk all about that. So we come now to the end of this, this account, this Taladot, and we discover that God is grieved And he is grieved because the righteous generation has failed to raise up a righteous seed. But we've also discovered that it's possible for righteous people to comfort the heart of God. And then just by way of example, remember Jesus in the garden? What did he want? In addition to the comfort of his heavenly Father, what was he seeking? What did he he long for that he didn't get? fellowship of the disciples in prayer. Could you not pray with me one hour? Can we not see the pathos there that the Creator of heaven and earth 
is longing for the comfort that could be brought to him by three disciples just staying up and praying with him. And they wouldn't do it. Okay, well that's done. Next week we'll go on to uh, the next few verses. And I handed out a study sheet last week for the next passage, so you should have that.